Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. That is our announcements. Uh, Most of you know this, but if you're online and you don't know me, I'm Pastor Chris, and I'm the pastor here, just not the last three weeks, apparently. Uh, I have been gone, but it's good to be back with you. Uh, The last two weeks, Casey has started off this sermon series titled Pray Like This, where we're taking an honest and open look at the Lord's Prayer, as seen in Matthew chapter 6. I think Casey did a great job covering this first half of the series, and now I get to come in and I get to wrap up these last two weeks with y'all. And uh, I'm excited for what God has done through this series, and I'm really excited for how he's going to continue to move in our hearts and give us a fresh perspective of how the opportunity to engage in personal prayer in a proactive way enhances our intimacy with our Father in heaven. Amen. And really, that's, that's the heart of all this, and I'm excited uh, for us to continue to take a look at that. Um, in the first couple of weeks, like I mentioned, Casey really dug into the heart and the need to be proactive in our prayer life. That if we just settle for being reactionary in what we pray for, we miss out on a significant aspect of relating with our Father. And so I'm excited uh, for the foundation that he has laid and that I get the opportunity to build upon that with you all. So today, where are we headed with this? We're gonna keep moving forward But we're also going to look a little bit at the broader context of the Lord's Prayer. And as you know, it's not just like one book of the Bible is the Lord's Prayer. Like there's a lot of text around it. And specifically with our topic today, I believe that the broader context will help us frame what God really wants to pierce into our hearts about the truth of our text for today. Now, many of you know this about me. I was raised in a Catholic church and a lot of the rhythms and methodology within Catholicism was different than what I have experienced in the evangelical world, specifically as a non-denominational Christian church like Grace City. Um, And growing up in that tradition, the Lord's Prayer was something that we said very often, but rarely understood, at least as as a youngster growing up in that faith tradition. So you better make sure you have it memorized or you look like a fool when everyone at church is reciting it together. But I don't recall as a youngster ever being taught what it actually meant. I was taught to memorize it. And so as I developed a personal relationship with Jesus and he saved me and I I got into a Jesus-following, like discipleship-based church, for the first few years, I was kind of hand, like arm's length with the Lord's Prayer because so much of my life, it was a religious expression rather than a relational one. I don't know if any of you can relate based on how you came up in the faith or how you view these things. But as God started to grab a hold of my heart and Jesus really started to transform my life and my heart for relationships, the Lord's Prayer and the text around it opened up a whole new level of understanding God's heart for his kids for me. And that's my hope today that we can just dig a little bit deeper into that because this prayer is not about just some religious expression and making sure that you know the right things to repeat at the right times. This is about a relationship with the God who created you, with relationship with the Christ who saved you, and a relationship with the ongoing body of Christ as we move forward. It is robust, it matters, and I pray that God will really help us to have open hearts and ears to receive what he has for us today. Amen. 
Before we get into it, though, I think we'd be missing something if we didn't take a moment to recognize the ways in which this concept that we're going to talk about today, which is what Jesus has to say about forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer, if we didn't acknowledge that forgiveness needs a little needs a little definition. It needs a little defining. It needs some redeeming. Amen? Like, forgiveness has been so twisted by the human condition of sin and how people have used it, sometimes for power and control, sometimes to manipulate for social pressures or whatever else. And I think it's just worth taking a quick look at like, hey, here's how forgiveness is often manipulated so that we can move forward and really see how what Jesus is teaching us is so much different for those things. So, as you guys know, I'm not telling anything new, forgiveness is something that is both received and extended to others, right? Like it's a two-way thing. We can forgive and we can be forgiven and receive that. And so as we look at this concept of forgiveness and how a sinful lens has manipulated it, it may be through giving or receiving. Ways we see this work out are things like kids saying sorry to simply be released into a moment or a privilege or be released from a moment of discipline. If you have parents, you've seen this. Like, yeah, I'm sorry. Sure, I'm sorry. Because they just want to escape whatever's going on in the moment. Now, I use that illustration for kids, but let's be honest, adults, we get a little bit of that in our own lives sometimes too, right? We want to be released from a moment or into a moment. This also might look like an adult asking for forgiveness as a reactionary function because they got caught at something. Oh, I got caught. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so... I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? We've seen this and probably done this as well. We can also see this warped because somebody may always ask for forgiveness because they have such a low warped view of their self-worth and who they are to their creator. So they're always just self-deprecating, asking for forgiveness so quick to be, yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm horrible. Will you forgive me? Or we got the camo forgiveness, I call it. The camouflage of forgiveness where you're actually being prideful, but you're just clothing it in the camouflage of forgiveness. Things like, I am sorry for being so committed to the truth that I hurt your feelings. You guys ever experienced one of those? Where like forgiveness is a camouflage for an actual like prideful, hurtful, just arrogant way of relating with people. And I I know earlier in my life, uh, I would catch myself using forgiveness or the extension of it for social leverage. Like before I really grasped what Jesus had done for me, I would use it. I would, I would withhold it until somebody earned it, right? Like, well, I'll forgive you and you prove that you're worthy of being forgiven. And it seems like this righteous, like fleshly thing. Oh, well, yeah, of course. But as we'll get into, if we have another sermon series on forgiveness, because we don't have time today, forgiveness and trust are different. And so we are always called to forgive and trust is the thing that is re-earned, right? And so I would use it to, to leverage social relationships and holding on to it. And what it actually did to me is it held me hostage emotionally. It held me hostage spiritually. It held me hostage relationally because I was trying to manipulate something that was good and of God in a human fleshly manner. And I know that others in this room have experienced forgiveness, either the extension of it or receiving of it, being manipulated, being used for control and power and in all different key ways. But the reality of it is, is like many other things we experience in our life, forgiveness is God-given. It's a God-given thing. And it's an amazing thing. And as humans, we can tend to mess it up like we do plenty of good things that God has given us. 
We tend to make it about us. We tend to make it about our pride, our control, our insecurity, rather than about the one who extended the ultimate act of forgiveness to us. And that's through Jesus. And so we need to recognize and get back to the heart of, okay, what is what does godly forgiveness look like? What does it look like for that to play out in our lives, both in the receiving and the extending of it? So today, we're going to try to wrap our minds around what Jesus has to say about forgiveness. And I'm going to pray that God will lead us to a place where this concept of forgiveness is redeemed in our lives and in our community. Amen? So the title of this message today is simply The Fruit of Forgiveness. The Fruit of Forgiveness. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, but we're going to start at verse 5 and read through verse 15. I'll be reading out of the NIV, but most of your, application, your translations, I'm sure, will get you to the same place. Starting in verse five. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who's unseen then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Father, I pray in advance for the way in which your word will penetrate the hearts of my brothers and sisters here today and online with us. God, I, I pray that this would be applied in our lives as we, as we receive your word and that you would redeem and transform our hearts for forgiveness, both in receiving and extending it. So God, would you have your way with this time? Holy Spirit, I pray that these words would be from you and not me and that you would work on all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So... <laughs> It's worth understanding what's happening and wrapping our mind around what's happening in the broader context here. In this entire chapter of Matthew 6, it has a pattern or a cadence to it. It starts out with Jesus helping reframe or shift people that he's preaching to's idea of giving to the needy and their motives for giving to the needy, the necessity of it and their motives for it. And then he goes into praying, the necessity of it, their motives for it. And then he goes into fasting, similarly. Oh, don't just go fast and act like you're in pain all the time. So people are like, oh, he's fasting. What a super spiritual person. Like he condemns that, right? And he says, no, you, this is necessary, but what are your motives for it? Then he talks about our motives for acquiring money, the love of money and how that can pollute our hearts and our spiritual lives and even our physical lives. And then he goes on to worry and anxiety and he deals with that and shaping motives and perspectives around who he is to help deal with those things that are real things that the human condition, that the human experience deals with. 
And there's a pattern or cadence to Jesus redeeming and shifting the rhetoric that is wrapped around all of these things in the ancient Near East where these disciples are receiving this word. But Jesus is totally transforming the way that someone who is a religious person is supposed to operate in each of these categories. And each of these pieces of the sermon have similar heart checks, as I mentioned. They point to motives, a shifting of the focus on the good and necessary elements of a worshipful life from one that is about presentation to others to one that is about offering to God. He's saying, hey, all these things are great. All these things are necessary, but you people do too much of trying to present that you're engaged in them instead of offering them to God. Whether someone sees you do them or not, the act is the same and the motive should be that God is glorified and honored and his people are cared for. Not that someone sees, oh, look at that person. They're so awesome. Do you see how much money they gave to the poor? That's what he's tackling here throughout this chapter. And this concept of prayer, this Lord's prayer is right in the middle of all of this. It's a part of this grander narrative. Our part of Jesus's sermon on prayer has a bit of preface to it. See, we, the Lord's prayer is starting in verse nine, but starting in verse five is Jesus giving a preface to why he's telling them to pray like this. So I want to talk about that for a moment. So this will continue to enlighten how God wants to penetrate our hearts today on this topic of forgiveness. You see, Jesus was shifting a cultural and religious paradigm in what he was teaching. He wasn't just reinforcing the status quo. He wasn't just coming alongside the rabbis saying, yeah, what they've been teaching you, just keep with that. Like he was shifting this cultural and religious paradigm. And it involved religious prayer methods and twisted motives and often people being more concerned with how they were viewed in moments of prayer than who they were praying to. Oftentimes, these moments where people come together in synagogues or wherever else were about trying to sound like I had the right things to do and presenting a holy, like having it together presence rather than what was being offered to God and who they were praying to. And when Jesus starts this, he assumes, we can tell by his language, that he assumes his disciples are going to pray. He's not having like a time where he's trying to convince him, like, hey, you guys need to pray, right? He's like, when you do pray, pray like this. <clears throat> and he forbids them to pray like the hypocrites. It's the very first thing he says, don't pray like the hypocrites. You see, prayer had a prominent place in Jewish life, and it contributed to lots of rabbinic decisions, a lot of ways that the Jewish leadership would make decisions on the direction of the church, the lives of the Jewish people. Oftentimes in a synagogue during worship, someone would be asked to pray publicly, and they'd stand behind the ark, and they would pray these rehearsed words and these things that they just did repeatedly. And at certain times, prayer was even offered on the streets. But what Jesus is shifting here as he addresses this is the location is not the critical factor or even the posture physically of prayer in any of these given moments isn't the factor. Like you don't have to stand and you don't have to be behind the ark and it doesn't have to be within a synagogue or some sanctioned street preaching where your prayer is honoring God. In the Bible, people often pray prostrate. They pray kneeling, sitting, standing, like all of the above. So if all of those are ways that are encouraged to pray in the Bible, why would just standing in certain ways and praying certain things be the way that we need to engage? And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm rewriting this. We're overriding this experience you have about prayer. And he's telling them that it's the motive that is crucial. And Jesus is pointing out here that to be seen by men is not a good motive. If you're doing it to be seen by men, like that motive 
is questionable at best. And that is what he would call a hypocrite. Now he says, go into your room and pray. Well, is Jesus forbidding all public prayer? Like, no, if he was, then the original church in Acts had it all wrong. And I don't think that's the case. Um, I, I don't think that's what he's saying. But this public versus private question is a good test of one's motives. So what he is saying is, hey, if you struggle with this and sometimes you pray in front of people because you want them to think of you a certain way or you're doing it to be seen by men, well, let me tell you what, here's how we're gonna rehabilitate that. You're gonna go into your room and you're gonna pray just you and God's still gonna see that and he's gonna be honored by that and he's going to bless you out of that. Don't be a hypocrite. If your motives are tempted, then go into your room and it's just as effective. You can be on your knees in your room and it's just as effective as if you're praying out loud in front of other people trying to be seen. The person who prays more in public than in private reveals that he is less interested in God's approval than in human praise. I say again, the person who prays more in public than in private reveals that he or she is less interested in God's approval in relationship with him and more so in human praise. That is what he would call a hypocrite. That is what he would call wrong motives. And then Jesus goes on to address this repetitive or babbling prayer, babbling prayer, right? And here Jesus is not condemning prayer any more than he would condemn fasting or giving in this chapter. He's not condemning it. He himself actually prayed at length. He repeated himself at prayer and he told a parable to show the disciples to pray always and not give up. Like pray always, don't give up praying, persevere. So Jesus isn't like coming against lengthy prayers. He's coming against empty prayers. He's not coming against lengthy prayers. His point is that his disciples should avoid meaningless, repetitive prayers offered under the misconception that mere length will make them effective. There is no certain word count like your college paper that has to be met in order for God to give you a good grade on your prayer. That's not how it works. He's saying, hey, you can come to me with the most simple statement. If it's out of a place of desiring to connect with your heavenly father, I will be honored, glorified, and pleased with that. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people that are paralyzed to pray around other people because they think they won't say it right, have enough to say, or be eloquent enough. And that is just, I, I get it, I've been there, but that's not the heart of God. What parent doesn't want their kid to relate to them, to speak to them, to share what's on their heart with them, right? Like, God is your father and he cares about these things. And when we actually look at him from a relational perspective instead of just a religious perspective. He's not just on some throne judging our words. He's right here listening and interacting with us as we give those words to him. <clears throat> now these thoughtless, meaningless, babbling prayers could be offered back in the day in both the secular and religious context. And I say that because it does address pagans. But in the original language and in the context of it, he's, he's talking to both religious people and Gentiles or non-religious people. And he's not condemning the pagans or Gentiles here. He's simply conveying that the Father knows you. The God who created knows you, knows you intimately, and you don't have to make a case about your circumstances before you petition him in prayer. You don't have to lay out, here's everything that's going on, God, just so you know. Now, can you do something here? Like He, he already knows. And the content of our prayers, if they are in contrite nature, more than in length and showmanship, will honor God much more. 
if we come to him with a contrite heart, rather than trying to have some showmanship or length or certain equation of prayer, that is going to connect with your father in a more effective way. Much like his concern of what is within his people, the condition of our heart, God is much more concerned with what is within our prayers, the conditions and the motives of our prayers, rather than what we can present to others in these moments. God is always about the motives and what's inside the condition of the heart. And it's no different as we pray, as we enter into that. So let's look at verses 14 and 15 again real quick in the context of what we've been unpacking. And this is right after the Lord's Prayer. It says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So if we know that Jesus is adjusting the heart condition of his people, and then he says, pray like this, and then he summarizes it with these two sentences, it begs the question, I wonder if the people Jesus was teaching had a forgiveness problem. Do you think they might have had a forgiveness problem? He's, he's kind of making it a big deal. We see this prayer sandwiched in between. Like I said, this heart adjustment, like, hey, 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 here's what's going on all around you. I'm calling you to be a different people. In fact, let me lovingly give you this little template. Here's, here's some, a way you can pray. If you're struggling with it, I want you to be able to relate to me. Here's a way you can do that through prayer. Now let us read through this prayer again and see what else sticks out. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts or sins as we have also been forgiven our, or as we have also forgiven our debtors or those who have sinned against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Verse 12 just kind of pops out at us there. Now, partially because we just read verses 14 and 15, right, about forgiving. And I've been saying forgiving over and over. But that, that, even if you just read through it the first time, it should stick out to you. And here's one of the reasons why. The insertion of that pesky little word as. Let me read it again for you. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, the insertion of the word as here communicates a relationship between the forgiveness we receive and the forgiveness that we give or extend. Just that, that one little word. Now, defined in the dictionary, as in the form of, of an adverb simply means to the same degree, amount, or extent. So if, if we put that definition in there, it could read this way. And forgive us our debts to the same degree, amount, or extent we have also forgiven our debtors. That looks a little, starts to look a little different, doesn't it? Forgive us our debts or forgive our sins and offenses against others to the same degree, amount, or extent that we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. Jesus is telling his people or these people that he's teaching to pray to actively petition God that he would forgive them to the same extent that they had forgiven others. That's kind of bold, isn't it? He's not just saying like in verses 14 and 15, like, hey, here's how it plays out. But he's saying, I want you to actively pray that this would be true, that this would be your reality. 
I wonder if those Jesus was preaching to had a forgiveness problem. You have to continue to think about that. These people had a forgiveness problem. And I can only imagine that they would. Because if you've studied through your Bible and the cultural and social context of it and what these people were going through at this time, I could only imagine the unforgiveness that would be festering in a people that had been in and out of oppression for thousands of years. For people that had been dealing with rampant racism and tribalism. For people that were persecuted for what they believed. For people that lived with extremely low means due to the occupying Roman forces and the government manipulation through the tax system. For a people that experienced hurt, betrayal, and abuse as all too many people still do today. And in a people that, even if they trusted God and submitted to his law, were not experiencing the circumstantial evidence of his protection and his blessing in their life. These people probably had plenty of reasons to have a problem with forgiveness. In fact, I guarantee that the people he was teaching, that he was preaching to, have a forgiveness problem. And I believe that's why this prayer and the motive and heart of prayer that Jesus teaches has such a focus on forgiveness. Not just in this one verse, but in the heart shift he prefaces the prayer with and in the reminder that they are praying to God, the Almighty, that he is for them, that he will provide for them and that he has provided and cared for them over time. And the reminder at the end about the relationship between forgiving and being forgiven. You guys, this mattered to Jesus. It mattered to God. And it still matters to Jesus. And therefore, it matters to us. It clearly mattered to him. It must matter to us as his disciples. And what Jesus is teaching here is a profound point for the disciple to understand and practice. Now, he's not saying that you earn his forgiveness as you forgive. He's not saying that he owes you forgiveness when you forgive. It's not some economical transaction. But what he is saying is that when you forgive others, it is evidence of having received his forgiveness. When you forgive others, it's evidence, it's fruit of having received his forgiveness. And if you are unforgiving, then the fruit of having been saved and transformed from the inside out is not present. Let me say that again. If you are unforgiving, the fruit of having been forgiven is not present in your life. Your forgiveness of others is the fruit of the forgiveness you have received. They're related. That pesky as. If there's no forgiveness for others in your life, then there's no fruit of the transformative power and heart change that God gives his people. No forgiveness, no fruit. If you are unwilling to forgive others for their sin or offense towards you, how can you even begin to comprehend the enormity of the offense against God and that he is offering forgiveness for it? John Stott puts it this way. Once our eyes have been opened to the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries in which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own offenses. 
May we be a community that bears much fruit in this area. Amen. May we be a family that God's grace abounds in the area of forgiveness of others as an evidence of the fruit of our understanding of the forgiveness that God has given to us. May we not minimize our own offenses and our own sin to the point where we just view other people's stuff as really bad and God's lucky to have us on his team. I pray that we would be among those who have received forgiveness and are so possessed with gratitude to God that in turn we will eagerly turn and forgive our debtors or those who have sinned against us or offended us. This teaching doesn't teach that we must first forgive others so that we can receive forgiveness for ourselves. Rather, that forgiveness of others is proof that our sins are forgiven and that we possess salvation. It's the fruit of it. We are to forgive those who have wronged us to maintain a joyful experience of our salvation. And doing so serves as evidence that we have been truly forgiven of our debt of sin. And if we don't forgive, it's evidence that we haven't experienced the forgiveness of God in our own lives. So those that Jesus was teaching in this sermon had a forgiveness problem. And those that Jesus is teaching through this sermon right now have a forgiveness problem. This isn't something that just existed to those poor ancient Near East people back in biblical times. This is something that exists today. There's no denying it that it's a part of the human condition of sin. And every time we fight the temptation to take offense or withhold forgiveness, we shine the light of Jesus into the demonic shadows that try to prevail all around us. We shine a light into the plans of the enemy that bring darkness wherever he can. And we'll talk more about that next week, but we must acknowledge today and right now that this is a battle. It's a battle. And forgiveness is a weapon. And unforgiveness is a spy. Forgiveness is a weapon. Unforgiveness is a spy. It's a spy that infiltrates your heart, destroys unity, destroys peace, destroys joy, and destroys hope from within. You see, it starts out as a masked, justified visitor, cloaked in the disguise of like righteous indignation or frustration or having been wronged. And you think, yeah, I'll let you in. That sounds about right. I'm feeling that right now. And it seems like a much needed ally in times of hurt or pain, but it embeds itself in every area of our lives. And it begins to reprogram the centrality of Christ in your life to the centrality of self. Because this spy starts telling you that everything is about what you have endured and how you've been hurt and how you've been wronged instead of the fact that Christ covers that and you wronged him and he forgave you anyway. It starts to reprogram that stuff deep inside. And before you know it, this spy has you believing that you're on an island, that you're isolated, you're not cared for, you're not protected, you're not loved, you're not understood. And then he offers you to join the allied forces of bitterness and sin patterns. He says, come on in, we'll take care of you. This is a good way to deal with all of this. But today is the day, family, the day that this spy is detected, captured, cast out, and never allowed to return. This spy of unforgiveness, if you will, bitterness, 
whatever you want to apply to it. Like, we need to call it by name, we need to tell it where to go, and we need to move on with hearts of forgiveness because that's how God calls us to live. So I'm going to ask you as we wrap up, and worship team, you can come back up. Please not out loud, but in your mind. Give a name to that spy right now. Give a name to that person or offense that you've been unwilling to forgive. Give a name to it. Ask God to deal with that and trust him with that. Forgive that. You see, our culture, our nation, and our people have a forgiveness problem. You and I have a forgiveness problem. And we see it all around us. People are unwilling to forgive. We're unwilling to forgive those who vote different, those who look different, those who have wronged us, who've hurt us, who have abused us, who've stolen from us, betrayed our trust, those we wish would have cared more when we went to them, those who wish we would have been slower to anger, those who we wish would have just talked to us instead of everybody else, right? Like we have plenty of things that cause us to not want to forgive. We have plenty of things that plant spies in our heart in this area. The reality is there is no shortage of people on earth who are willing to take offense or be offensive. There's not a shortage of people who are willing to take offense or be offensive. But there is a shortage of people that would walk out their salvation and the joy of it by bearing the fruit of forgiveness in their lives and urging those around them to do the same. I, I petition you as family, and I'm reconciling this and, and committing to this in my own heart. Would we be those people that would bear the fruit of forgiveness because we comprehend of what we've been forgiven? I don't believe I will ever fully understand this side of meeting Jesus, what I've been forgiven. But I know it's a lot. I know it's dark. And I know it's sad. And I know that it is offensive to God. But I know that Jesus still died on the cross for those things and I've been forgiven of them. So would we be a people that recognize that and extend the fruit and grace of forgiveness to others? Confess your debts and your sins and then release the debts and offenses that have come against you. Give the spy a name. Call it out. Turn it into the authorities and make a choice day after day to bear the fruit of forgiveness in your lives. Amen? God, I thank you for this time. Father, I thank you that you call us to this radical life of forgiving others, even when we've been offended and hurt and mistreated and wronged. And God, I thank you that you modeled that in the way you've forgiven us. So Father, would you give us the courage and the compassion and the realization needed to live a life that bears this fruit of forgiveness. And we, when we pray to you, would we be so bold as Jesus calls us to, to pray that you would forgive us to the extent that we have forgiven others. And out of that, would we live a lifestyle committed to forgiveness, committed to fruit, and committed to you. We love you. We thank you for this time. We pray that you would work this out inside of us 
and in us as a family. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Would you guys rise as we close in worship?